Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and being taught, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious, gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to him, said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel, the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray again together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as we consider this passage, for this passage reveals who you are and what you came to do. Lord, we praise you, for you are indeed the Messiah. You are the one to whom all of the Old Testament pointed. You are the Son of God, the Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. Lord Jesus, in this passage, we see you. But Lord, in this passage, we also see ourselves. Lord, as we consider this response of, of those who were called your people, who rejected you. Lord Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to see ways that, that we have rejected you. Ways that even in this past week, we have chosen sin and self instead of choosing to follow you. We pray also for those, Lord, who have, have their lives are, are characterized by rejection of you, for those who have never been born again. We pray that as Jesus is lifted up for us in this passage, that you would work in their hearts through the power of your spirit, that you would grant them repentance and faith and life in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.
when I think of some of the greatest speeches that has ever been given in Western history, three of the top five would have to be Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, where he famously said, the nation shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Or think of John F. Kennedy's inaugural address with the line, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Or Martin Luther's speech at the 1963 March on Washington with the famous line, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they'll not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. All three of those men were brilliant orators. But what else do they have in common? Well, all three were American, and, and Jane might like that, but, but that's really besides the point. All three of those men were influential, inspiring many. But all three of these men also made enemies because of their ideals. All three of these men were assassinated because of the very ideals that they proclaimed. They were and are certainly polarizing figures. Well, this morning we're going to hear from the most brilliant orator who has ever lived. But this is no mere speech. This is a sermon. This is a message from the Word of God. And it would be accurate to say it like this. This is a message about the Word of God, delivered by the Word of God, for this is indeed Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Word of God. He is the Word made flesh, John 1, 1 and 14. If, there, if ever there was a person in history who inspired many and made many enemies, it was Jesus Christ. He is the most polarizing figure in all of history. Every single person who has ever and will ever live on the planet either accepts him or rejects him. Every single person who has ever and will ever live on the planet will live or die eternally based on whether they accept him or reject him. There is no middle ground. This passage, which is the first example of, of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel according to Luke, outlines who Jesus is and what he came to do. This morning we're going to see who Jesus is because of his authoritative teaching. And next week we'll see who Jesus is because of his miraculous power. This morning we'll see that Jesus is the Spirit-filled, God-anointed prophet who proclaims the arrival of the kingdom and salvation of God's people. As we'll see, he's more than a prophet, much more than a prophet. Well, this passage also reveals the reaction of people to him, to his message, and to his mission. This passage is really paradigmatic of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one sent by God to save his people. Yet he'll be rejected by many, culminating in his death on the cross. And this rejection is going to continue into the book of Acts, where the disciples in turn are rejected, much as he was. Jesus will be rejected and suffer. His people will be rejected and suffer. 
Suffering is part of God's plan for God's people. It is appointed to us not just to believe, but also to suffer for His name. But God has also promised that, that through that suffering, as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, that we will be sanctified, that we will grow, we will be transformed into the image of Jesus for the glory of His name. And so we, as God's people, need to stand fast. We need to stand fast on what God has promised, and we need to stand together in the strength that God provides. Only the elect will receive Him. Those who hear his message today are faced with the same choice that those who heard his message on that day have. Accept Jesus and be saved or reject Jesus and be rejected by God. How you respond to Jesus is how you respond to God and it's how you respond to God's word. This harkens back to Simeon's prophecy in Luke 2 verses 34 and 35 that Jesus is appointed for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. Through the hearts of Jesus, through, the, sorry, through, the, through Jesus, many hearts will be revealed. So this morning we're going to see three things. Jesus' exposition and the people's response in verses 14 to 22. Jesus' application and the people's response in verses 23 to 28. And the people's rejection and Jesus' response in verses 29 to 30. So first of all, in verses 14 to 22, Jesus' exposition and the people's response. With this passage in Luke 4.14, we begin a new section in Luke. As we see through our studies in Luke, Luke provides geographical markers to show the various phases of Jesus' ministry. And in Luke 4, 14 to 9, 50, we see Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Verses 14 and 15 here at the beginning provide an overview of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and his initial popularity. People glorify him as they hear his teaching, as he travels to the different synagogues proclaiming the word of God. But how people respond at first does not matter nearly so much as their final response. The response of people is going to change in this passage. It is not going to remain a response of, of acceptance, but of rejection. Jesus is going to find acceptance and rejection all along the way until Luke 9, 51, where he'll set his face to, towards Jerusalem, where he will face the ultimate rejection. Luke tells us that Jesus' return was in the power of the Spirit. The angel had told Mary that Jesus would be filled by the Spirit even in the womb. Jesus had been led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Now he is being empowered by the Spirit to minister in Galilee. Now we, we saw the Spirit descend on Jesus, lead Jesus, fill Jesus, and empower Jesus. Well, in this section, the focus is on the Spirit's role in equipping Jesus for His ministry. Well, this is, this is his first, the first ministry of Jesus that is recorded in Luke's Gospel account. It's clear that He's already been active in ministry, performing miracles in Capernaum. He refers to those in verse 23. But now Jesus returns to Nazareth. 
25 kilometers from the Sea of Galilee from his, to his hometown. Matthew and Mark include Jesus' homecoming later in their gospel accounts. Nazareth is a, an, it was an insignificant little town in Jesus' day. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, synagogue is actually a loan word in English, English from the Greek verb meaning gather together. And notice that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, of course, we don't worship in the synagogue. We worship as the church, and, and the Sabbath is now Sunday, the Lord's Day. But is it your custom to gather together with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day? How easy is it for you to skip church? I focus, I've posted an article the other day on the church Facebook page that I would encourage you to read that, that talks about, about these things. Now, we understand that there are, there are reasons why people can't come. There's sickness that has kept a lot of people home today. And I'm thankful that, you, that those people stayed home so they don't spread it to me, to the children in the church and the elderly in the church. There are reasons, valid reasons, to be home instead of being at church. We need to examine in the Word of God whether these are legitimate reasons. That's not the main point here. Luke, went to the, Jesus, Luke says that Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Well, now the action really begins to slow down to focus on what's taking place. There's a sense of, of expectation. All we've heard about Jesus so far, his miraculous birth, the heavenly host praising him, the, the witness of the shepherds, his presentation at the temple, the amazement of the teachers at his understanding in the temple, the, the preparation by John the Baptist, the genealogy, his temptation in the wilderness. It was all building up to his ministry. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. The Bible was not yet in a book like it is now. It was presented in scrolls. There was individual scrolls for, for, the, for the Torah and, and for the, the, the books of the prophets and, and the wisdom. And Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the text in Isaiah that he had chosen and read it in verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was reading here from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and Isaiah 58, verse 6. But notice how Jesus begins with another reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, although he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, this specific ministry of the Spirit was fulfilled at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And Jesus focuses here on his, his ministry of, of proclamation, of declaring the Word of God. Notice that Jesus has been anointed and sent, commissioned by God to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58 speak of the message of deliverance. It's paralleled in the year of Jubilee, which you can read about in Leviticus 25, verses 8 to 17, that took place once every 50 years. It was a sabbatical year in which debts were canceled and slaves were freed. Well, then in verse 20, Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, 
and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Suspense builds. They were all intently focused on him, wondering what he's going to say. They'd known Jesus as a boy, as a young man. And now they'd heard about his miracles. Well, now they would hear from him themselves. What is he going to say? Verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is clearly only a part of his message. Luke is providing a summary of what Jesus said. There are volumes in that one sentence. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying it all points to him. It all points to him. Jesus could have said that about any passage of Scripture in the Old Testament because all the Old Testament points to him, but he chose this passage for a very specific purpose. There are many similar references in the the book of of Isaiah that, that, that sound a lot like this passage, especially the four servant songs that refer to God's anointed servant, the Messiah. And so in pronouncing this fulfillment, saying, he's saying, I am the one that Isaiah speaks of. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. I am the Messiah. He's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. A prophet could merely proclaim the kingdom. Jesus does that too, but he's not just going to proclaim the kingdom. He's going to usher in the kingdom. He will not just proclaim salvation, he will deliver salvation. So again, this passage teaches who Jesus is and what he came to do. How do the people respond? Well, initially, the response is very positive. They they appreciate his his eloquent and his, his hopeful message. They spoke well of him and they marveled at his gracious words. Again, Lucas provided us with just a snapshot of Jesus' message. But now we get a snapshot of what's going on in their hearts. They said, is not this Jesus' son? They were impressed, sorry, is not this Joseph's son? They were impressed by his words, but not so much with him. They were essentially saying, hey, wait a second. How can this nobody, this son of a nobody, be the Messiah? We're given a snapshot of what's happening in their hearts, but Jesus doesn't have just a snapshot. He knows what's going on. In verses 23 to 28, we have Jesus' application and the people's response. There's only been one time, at least I'm aware of, that a number of people were offended by my exposition of a text. I remember one time specifically when when people were offended with me for for preaching this passage. As I preached from Joshua chapter 11, I was walking through Joshua, demonstrating that God had predestined the Amalekites for destruction. Verse 20 reads that, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now that is a hard passage. And you can understand how someone who disagrees with the doctrine of predestination would be offended by this. 
If you're offended by this at the moment, please come and talk to me after the service. Or if you're offended at any point by anything that I say in one of my sermons, please come and talk to me. But people aren't usually offended by explanation. They're usually offended by application. That's when they accuse a, a preacher to begin meddling. When they get into your kitchen. When they get into your life and, and how you are walking out this passage. The, the, the exposition part is easy. It's easy for us to have a right interpretation of the passage, but the application is a lot more difficult. And again, it's not necessarily just the understanding the application, but doing the application. That's where we fully rely on the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Jesus knew full well what was going on in their hearts. So he pressed the point home. He didn't come back and apologize and say, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to offend you guys and try to water it down. He doubled down. Verse 23, with his application, he says to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They were looking for miracles, for signs. They're saying, prove it. Prove it. You say that you're the Messiah. Prove it to us by performing miracles. We heard what you've done down there in Capernaum. We want to see it too. But the reality is that no sign will convince an unregenerate heart of who Jesus is. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, did the chief priests repent and worship him? No, they plotted to kill Lazarus because many were rejecting them and following Jesus, John 12, 10 and 11. It's not evidence from Jesus that's needed, but repentance from the people. It's not a demonstration of Jesus' power that's needed, but re regeneration by the Spirit's power. But their rejection is typical. It's typical of people who hate God. Jesus quotes the proverb, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Again, the people are saying, we know his family. We watched him grow up. He's nobody special. But as Chaucer wrote, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now maybe you've experienced that as you've tried to witness to your family. They look at you and they, they remember you as a child. They, they remember your shortcomings. We all have shortcomings, even still. We do need to watch our life and our doctrine so that we don't discredit the things we're seeking to proclaim. But Jesus didn't have any shortcomings. He was sinless. Ultimately, when people reject the message of Jesus, they're rejecting Jesus. And so Jesus is saying here that people don't accept prophets in their hometown and you don't accept me in my hometown. I'm a prophet and you are rejecting me. Oh, and while we're on the topic of rejected prophets, let's think about two more. Elijah and Elisha. The, the first rejected prophet, Elijah, was, he was active in ministry during the reign of Ahab, one of Israel's most wicked kings. 
And it was during one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. 1 Kings 16.33 says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. His wicked wife Jezebel had led him into the worship of Baal. And this pagan worship spread like gangrene under his rule. And it's into this spiritual context that God sent Elijah first to Ahab. You can read about this in 1 Kings 17. He first sent, God first sent Elijah to Ahab to tell him that the Lord God was sending a drought. It's going to last for three and a half years. Then the Lord sent Elijah into the wilderness where ravens fed him and he drank from a brook. And then when the brook dried up because of the drought, the Lord moved Elijah again. This time to Zarephath in Sidon, to a particular widow. Now, Jesus' hearers knew exactly what he was talking about. Those were dark days in Israel. God had sent Elijah outside of Israel to a Gentile. And to make matters worse, Sidon also happened to be the place where Jezebel was from, 1 Kings 16, 31. Faith was almost non-existent in Israel, but this widow had faith. She was poor and she was needy, that she rec but she recognized that Elijah had been sent by the Lord and she, so she gave him the last of her food. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. She, she had one jar of oil and one jar of flour, but the Lord provided for her and for her son and for Elijah as that oil did and that flour did not run out until the end of the drought. But that's not the only miracle that the Lord performed for her through Elijah. The Lord also used Elijah to raise her son, her only child, from the dead. There were many widows in Israel, but God passed them all by and sent Elijah to this Gentile, Sidonian widow. No one in Israel saw anything of that kind. The next miracle that they would see was Elijah calling fire down on the prophets of Baal. Well, Jesus' next illustration is of Elijah's successor, Elisha. In 2 Kings 5, we see another miracle performed for a Gentile. This time it's Naaman, a Syrian general who was afflicted with leprosy. Not only was he a Gentile, not only was he an unclean leper, but he was a, a commander in an enemy army. He had a Jewish slave girl who he'd taken captive from one of his raids. And, who, and this little slave girl told, told his wife that there was a prophet in Israel who could heal him of his leprosy. Well, they sent word to the king of Syria, sorry, from the king of Syria to the king of Israel on Naaman's behalf, along with many valuable gifts. The king of Israel was upset. He was, was worried about, about the, the wrath of Syria because of this letter that he was not able to, if Elisha was not able to, to heal Naaman. But Elisha assured him that he could heal Naaman. So Naaman, with a great entourage, arrives at Elisha's house. Elisha tells him to wash in the Jordan seven times and he would be healed. But Naaman was angry. 
He disdained the Jordan River in preference for the rivers of Syria, but thankfully his servant persuaded him to change his mind. And so he followed Elisha's instructions and was healed. Jesus says that there were many lepers in Israel, but God passed them all by to heal Naaman, the Gentile, the leper, an enemy. The people of Israel had rejected the prophets of the Lord, so the Lord sent Elijah and Elisha to despised Gentiles. Jesus is saying that the people must make their decision about this prophet too. Sinclair Ferguson says that God's word is going to leave you and it's going to go somewhere else. This is not the first time this has happened. That's really the crux of Jesus' message here through these illustrations. That the people would have been happy for Jesus to take care of their, their problems. They would have been happy for Jesus to, to heal their sick and to get rid of the Romans. But Jesus did not come on their terms. He came on his own terms. Jesus was not proclaiming liberation theology. This, this was not freedom from social, political, and economic oppression. This is not a social gospel that Jesus brought. Jesus did not ultimately come to deal with political or physical problems. Yes, Jesus would do that. But as a testimony of who he was. Jesus was not a social and political and economic revolutionary. Jesus was a revolutionary, but he was a revolutionary of love. That's not a cliche. Jesus was the manifestation of God's love, of God's love for God and of God's love for God's people. This was something the people desperately needed. Even if they didn't know they needed it, they were blind to their need. People tend to want Jesus to fix their problems and heal their pain. The poor want food. Captives and the oppressed want liberty. The blind want sight. It's natural. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things. But if that's all someone is seeking from Jesus, they're ignoring what he really came to give. They want the gift, but they don't want Jesus. Luke talks a fair bit about captivity and release from captivity. And the captivity he speaks of is, is ultimately spiritual bondage. And the release that he's talking about is spiritual release. It's freedom from sin and freedom from the consequences of sin. Sight is about spiritual sight. That people would be, would be given eyes to see. Not to see physically, but to see spiritually. They would begin to see eternal realities. They would begin to see who Jesus really is. This is what Jesus came to usher in in his ministry. Again, a prophet could proclaim these things, but only Jesus can deliver on these things. A prophet can proclaim spiritual liberty and spiritual healing, but Jesus can deliver spiritual liberty and spiritual healing. J.C. Ryle says that Jesus was the friend of the poor in spirit the physician of the diseased heart, and the deliverer of the soul in bondage. He said these are the principal offices that he came on earth to fulfill. Jesus is the mightier one who John the Baptist spoke of, the one who baptizes with the Spirit, the one who brings salvation through the new covenant by his blood. But these people are rejecting Jesus. Furthermore, they understand 
that Jesus is saying that they're rejecting him and that in rejecting him, they're rejecting God. Well, now they're really angry. Now they're filled with wrath against Jesus. Let's not just think about those people. We need to think about ourselves. How do you respond to the message that Jesus brings? Do you seek the gift and not the giver? Do you get angry when God doesn't give you something that you want? Do you get angry when God blesses someone else instead of you? Are you angry at Jesus? Are you rejecting Jesus? Now, you might not be saying as much, but do your actions say otherwise? Does your lack of prayer or your lack of time in the word or your lack of obedience or your lack of fellowship with Jesus' people say something about your heart that you are, at least on some level, rejecting Jesus? John 14, 24 says that whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So you're not going to obey him if you don't love him. 1 John 4, 20 says that he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if you're not loving God's people and you're showing that by your absence from spending time with God's people, then you are not loving Jesus. In verses 29 and 30, we see the people's rejection and Jesus' response. Well, the people rose up all of the people rose up, the same people who knew Jesus, they'd grown up with Jesus, and all of them as one rose up and dragged him out of the synagogue and took him to the brow of the cliff to throw him off and kill him. Very probably they would have stoned him. Again, this was Jesus' hometown. These, these people knew him or thought they knew him. They regarded him as a false prophet. These people who were closest to Jesus physically were furthest from Jesus spiritually. They'd made their decision. They tried to do what the devil had tried to tempt Jesus to do. The devil had tried to tempt Jesus into murdering himself, and now they attempted murder themselves. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus, in choosing this passage from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, chose very intentionally. This passage is, is representative, again, of, of much of what we find in the book of Isaiah, especially of the four servant songs that, that talk about, about the, the servant who will, will come and to serve God and serve God's people. But, but he is, it's not just the servant songs, they are the suffering servant songs. The best known of these is, is Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. I'd ask you to please turn with me there in your Bible. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. We see here the rejection and the suffering of Jesus. Look at, look at verse 13. First of all, he's, we see that, that eventually he's going to be lifted up and he's going to be exalted. But before that, look at verse 14. Many were astonished at you. His appearance so marred beyond human semblance as his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
Jesus was beaten so badly by those who hated him that he was not even recognizable. One for, in 53, verse, uh, verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom they hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was demonstrating who he was. And these people demonstrated who they were and demonstrated also who Jesus was by their rejection of him. Again, this rejection that will culminate in their handing him over to the Romans to crucify him. Jesus will be killed. But not under their authority. He himself had the authority to lay down his life and the authority to take his life up again. He would only allow himself to be killed at the time that he appointed under God's sovereign plan. Through all of this, Jesus was still on the throne. But, verse 30, passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus did not retaliate he didn't perform a spectacular miracle. He simply walked away. No greater indictment and no greater sentence has ever been handed down. This is the same indictment and the same sentence that is handed down to every man and woman who rejects Jesus. Jesus goes away. Sinclair Ferguson again. Jesus reads the word, expounds the word, removes the word. When the people rejected the prophets, God sent them somewhere else. Jesus went away. And it seems that Jesus never came back to Nazareth. His gracious words were never heard in Nazareth again. Jesus went away. He had a mission to complete, a mission that would lead to his, in his death. Yes, that time they will succeed. But again, God is in control. It will only happen the time of his choosing according to his sovereign plan, according to the covenant of redemption when Jesus will lay down his life. I mentioned in my introduction that Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King all had something in common. Well, there's one more thing that they all had in common. Their faith was questionable at best. All three had repeated exposure to the Bible. Martin Luther King was an ordained Baptist minister, but he was known as a, as a profligate adulterer. He denied fundamental doctrines such as the sonship of Christ, the virgin birth, and the Trinity, to name a few, proving himself to be an unbeliever. John F. Kennedy, also an adulterer and a committed Roman Catholic. And Abraham Lincoln, who had also been exposed to Christianity his whole life. He doubtfully heard the gospel many times, but he believed something that was close to deism. But there's an added twist with Lincoln. Historians tell us that Lincoln was about to join the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington on Resurrection Sunday, 1865. 
but he never made it there. Abraham Lincoln was killed, assassinated on Good Friday, 1865, just two days before he was planning to go to church. Now, we don't know if Abraham Lincoln was converted or not, but he certainly did not expect to die on that Friday. None of these men expected to be killed in the horrific, violent way that they were. And unless they turned to Christ in repentance and faith, they all went to a Christless eternity under the eternal wrath of God. There's one more thing that, that we need to consider in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Something that Jesus did not read when he read that passage. Jesus did not just come to proclaim the year of Jubilee. In the second half of Isaiah verse 2, he also proclaimed to, came to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus intentionally left that passage out, that part of the passage out, because he was not coming at that point to bring vengeance. But he will return. He will return to bring vengeance on his enemies, on all of those who reject him. Like those men, like, like Martin Luther King and like John F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln. You can't rely on natural ability. You can't rely on the respect of those around you. You can't rely on any positive influence you have on others. None of these things can save you. You do not know when your life is going to end. Those Jews in that synagogue started out impressed by Jesus, but it wasn't very long before they'd try to kill him. And it wasn't very long before they'd succeed. And theirs wasn't the only congregation where this takes place. It's happening in congregations in this city this day. There are ministries, many ministries in the city who deny Jesus Christ. Yes, they might not. They claim to receive and to worship Jesus Christ, but by what they are saying about Jesus Christ and what they are doing, they are denying Jesus Christ. They are rejecting Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, we need to be very, very, very careful. Our focus cannot be just on what is taking place out there. We need to be aware of what is taking place here in our own hearts. Is your heart rejecting Jesus? Is your heart rejecting Jesus as, as one who has never come to Christ? Or is your heart rejecting Jesus as one who is currently walking in unrepentant sin? Repent. Call out to Jesus for forgiveness, whether this is, it is for the first time or for the thousandth, thousandth time, do this again. Call out to Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness. He will forgive you. He has promised to forgive you. His blood is able to break down that wall of separation between you and God. It's not just for us as individuals, but for us corporately as a church. How many of those churches that are now preaching heresy in the city once would have been considered orthodox? 
How many churches in the city that are, are preaching a false gospel at one time preach the true gospel? Are you praying earnestly for me, for this pulpit, that we will, by God's grace and for God's glory, stand fast? That we will not reject Jesus, whether in word or in deed. In preparation for this passage, I've, I've thought about ways that I have rejected Jesus, not just in the past, but in the past week. Ways that I have rejected Jesus in, in my behavior, in, in doing what I shouldn't do or not doing what I should have done. And that is true for you as well. It's true for all of us. We are all sinners. We all need to call out to Jesus. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the acceptable year of the Lord. Will you accept Jesus or will you reject Jesus? How you respond to that will determine on the day of judgment whether he will accept or reject you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you for the glorious gospel. Lord, we confess that we are weak, we are sinful. Lord, we reject you by sins of omission and commission. Lord, help us, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit to reveal our sin to our hearts. Lord, I pray that through your Spirit you grant us repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that you would, through your spirit, reveal Jesus to us, to us, who he is and what he has come to do. And I pray that you'd help us all to call out to him. Lord, eager for that salvation that only he can provide. Amen.